0: You are listening to the Piedmont Church Podcast. To learn more about Piedmont Church, including our gathering times in Macon, you can visit us online at piedmontchurch.net. Happy New Year to you. Go ahead and keep your Bibles there in that Luke chapter 10 space. So in the mid-1950s, President JFK and our entire country uh, set apart and set out to enter into the space race and by the 1960s the Congress had moved to fund this newly formed NASA with five Billion dollars to compete in this space race so to speak and by 1969 to most historians and folks paying attention they, de- they declare that u.s. had won this space race As Neil Armstrong steps on the moon and says those famous words, we make history. And then what? What happens after you reach this large accomplishment, this goal that you had set forth for years, all of the funds that you had put forward to it to be able to reach this climax, this moment that they had been looking forward to for years? Then what? Well, over the next several years, the space program was proverbially proverbially losing fuel. With every new moon landing or shuttle launch, the viewership declined, showing that the public interest was declining. And I think to some degree, we all understand this idea of what some would call a championship hangover. It's that idea in sports where it's very difficult for a team or an individual competing to win what? Back-to-back national titles or back-to-back Wimbledon titles or back-to-back Masters titles or whatever sport it may be. It is very difficult for someone to win whatever championship they desire back-to-back. In in another area of life, some may call this something like yo-yo dieting. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's where you, you fix your mind, your thought, all these things on some form of a goal to either lose weight or gain strength or run that half marathon or that full marathon, and you train and you train and you train, and as soon as you accomplish whatever said goal, all of the training and everything kind of stops, and what happens? That 15 that you hoped to put off, you put off, but then over the next year, if you did nothing different in your life, you gain 20, Right? That's how that works sometimes. It's yo-yo dieting. And so where do we find ourselves in this place where you've reached the accomplishment, the goal that you've set forth, you've gotten to this place, and now what? What do you do now? As we launch into the new year, many of us have set goals. Hopefully some of us, most of us in the room have set some sort of spiritual goal. And including in this, we're talking about how do we keep from falling back into maybe bad habits. And so the question that I want to ask today and over the next several weeks is: What are we supposed to experience as Christians? Is Christianity all about getting saved? I mean, the championship moment in a in a, in a Christian's life, in some ways, is perceived as getting saved. I mean, it is salvation. And so if you were to ask the question a different way, you may ask the question like this. So you're a Christian, what's next? And so what we're going to do is we're going to dive into what I would hope is some some core theology and doctrine. And we're going to get to some answers around what is the core of what a Christian is supposed to experience in life. What are we supposed to do in the day in and day out? And today we're going to dive deep into Luke chapter 10. And what we're going to learn and see from the Lord is we're going to, we're going to learn this. And the title of my sermon today is, what comes, after ser- uh, what comes After Salvation? Learning to Follow. Learning to Follow. If you're following along with us, we've got these fancy little bulletins this morning. On the back, there's notes. If you'd like to take notes, maybe start your new year off with keeping track with what's going on. I would encourage you to do that. So let's just dive into this text in Luke chapter 10. Verse 1, and let's begin to see how Jesus leads his disciples and you and I on how to follow. Chapter 10, verse 1. It says, After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. Now what we need to stop there and recognize is those first two words in this text. He says, after this, what Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is doing is he's hopefully intellectually connecting the previous statements, the previous paragraph, the previous moment in time with what is happening here. So when Luke says, after this, and maybe this is a little point for you when you're doing your quiet time or that new plan that you're reading. When you see phrases like, therefore, or after this, or some other phrase, word or phrase that kind of clues you in to something that is before it, go back and understand what's happening because what was happening is now, what the author is trying to clue you in, is now still happening. So when Luke says, after this, if you were to go back, many of us have titles in our Bible under chapters and some headings, right? The heading, previously, in the paragraph before this moment, says in most of your Bibles, the cost of following Jesus. And so, what Luke is trying to get you and I to clue in on is what he's about to say still fits in this vein, this kind of thesis moment where he is unpacking what it means to follow Jesus. So, after this is something that should have us lean in and see what Luke is tying to. And what he's tying to is This next portion of Scripture that we're reading in chapter 10 ties back into this idea of following Jesus. Let's pick up in verse 2. He says to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Let's stop there. So there's a couple things that we're going to learn over these next few verses. The first one is this. As a Christian what he's getting us to lean into is, as a Christian, you should now recognize the brokenness of the world around you. So learning how to follow, the first thing that he says when he says the harvest is plentiful is he's cluing us in that as a Christian, as a disciple of Christ, you should now recognize the brokenness of the world around you. Think about it like this. Think about it like a conversation with a child. Maybe you've taught your children or You've heard someone teaching other children, hey, we don't do this or we don't say this because it's not a nice thing. You ever had this moment? So we, we teach our kids, and hopefully most of you teach your kids, that hey, there's some language you, just can't, you can't say, you shouldn't say, right? And so when you hear these words, don't repeat them. They're not good words. Don't say them and then they go say them and you know we look like intelligent parents. But you know what I'm saying. You teach your kids, hey, don't, don't say these words. And then all of a sudden you get in a social setting and they hear said words. What are some of the first things they do? They either shout it out like, hey, you can't say that, right? And it's usually like your aunt or somebody at Christmas, you know, like they've just dropped a word that they maybe shouldn't have at the dinner table. And the kids going, you can't say that, right? Or in a social setting, it may look like a tug, like did they really just say that thing? Over the Christmas break, our, our family hung out with many people from friends to family all over the place, and there was one, this one specific moment. Michael walks up to me, and he kind of like gives me a tug to like lean in, and he goes, hey, why do they cuss so much, right? <laughs> you know, it's one of those moments. Like he, he is clued in to these words are bad. He has received some sort of truth and some sort of teaching, and he's now living that out and going, I recognize that that is not something that should be said. In in this same way, it's the same thing with our faith. When we've repented and believed in Jesus, he has made us a new creation. And so we begin to look at the world a little differently. We're clued in to some things. Now, that doesn't come overnight necessarily. There are some things that are immediate, but there are some things that kind of take the process of sanctification to to learn and go, wow, this really isn't how life should work. But there are some things that are very clear. And in some ways, what we need to do is we need to be more like children. Maybe not in the way we call it out, you know. If I I see one of you sinning or something that doesn't, you know, necessarily agree with my moral or ethical things, I don't think I should walk into a store like, that's wrong! That would probably, you know, not get me any friends. But there is this idea where we see Jesus teaching his disciples that the harvest is plentiful, there's at least a first step of recognition that there is a harvest. And that means that there is brokenness. And that means that there is sin. And there is need for something. So we have to recognize the harvest. The second part of this is he gives us a little bit of application in the part of verse 2. It says, Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So when we recognize that there is a harvest, the first thing that he's calling us to do is recognize the brokenness of the world. But the second part of this is as we recognize brokenness, we are called to action. Now, I want to make sure this action is very clear because action can look a lot of ways. But the first thing that Jesus tells us to do here is he tells his disciples to pray. Prayer focuses our heart and connects our mind to the Lord's. See, some of us have this knee-jerk reaction when we see something broken, when we see something wrong, we just want to step into action and do something. But what Jesus tells us first to do is to take action by seeking Him, by praying to Him. Because when we recognize brokenness, our flesh would have us do a couple of things. It may have us judge those people. It may have us be hateful. It may have us dismiss them entirely, or it may even have us kind of undermine who they are. But the Lord, unlike the flesh, calls for us to feel and to forge calls for us to feel and to forge. So here's how this looks like, what this looks. We see brokenness in the world. We recognize it. There is a harvest. And then he goes, come to me. Seek after me. So how do we feel that? What happens here in this moment? Well, when we pray, there's a couple of things that happen. The first thing that I think happens is it allows us to remember where brokenness comes from. Sin. It's kind of like resetting this system. Wow, there's broken things in the world. God, I, I'm trying to understand this, and what he does in prayer, what he does in reading his scripture is he gives you a a map, and the map begins with remembering that all have fallen short of the glory of God, and once you get from this place of all, you go to you. You need to remember your brokenness. See, sometimes we skip that step, right? As Christians, we, we forget that we're broken, I'm better than them because I'm saved and they're not. Or I'm better than them because I'm a cleaner version. I'm a better Christian than them. And what God calls us to do continually is what? Remember brokenness. Remember our brokenness. And then He doesn't leave us there long. What does He do? He calls us to then remember the path that He has paved for wholeness in the gospel. To remember that we've received that wholeness and to be glad And the last thing in the gospel, what he calls us to do is to remember that those who are broken need to hear about the path to wholeness. This is how we feel, right? When we recognize brokenness in the world and he calls us to action, the first action is prayer. And when we pray, this in many ways is how our hearts should be leaning into the Lord remembering the brokenness of the world, remembering our brokenness, remembering that he paved a way, and remembering that he has then called us into that path. But it didn't stop there. So you're a Christian, what's next? The path then calls you and I to get others to hear it. So that's how we feel. And and there's something kind of a tangent to this that I want to make sure I point out. When he calls you to pray, that first action step of prayer, do you know what he's really doing? He's really calling you and asking you to trust him. Like in our prayers, he's asking you to trust him. Think about how you do things. I'll tell you how I do things. Sometimes when I hear about a problem, this happens with my bride all the time, she hates it. She'll be coming to me after work She'll have an issue at work. Now, there should be a sign for us men. The the sign should either flicker on, I need your help, or the sign should never come on. And that way I know she's just venting or she's not, right? Men, can I get an amen? Amen. Right? She comes to me and she's telling me something about work. And I'm not even listening to the end before I'm trying to solve this problem, right? I ain't going to the Lord. I got this, right? Right? You know what I mean? And then she gets to the end, and I, sometimes I've caught myself, and I'm like leaning on the edge of my chair. I'm like, all right, is she done? Because if I interrupt my wife, I'm dead, right? <laughs> so I'm trying to remember all the things that she said, and now I'm trying to discern, does she want my help, or was I just supposed to listen, right? What God wants us to do in all types of moments is he wants us to come to him to trust him before we take steps of action, come to him and by coming to him in prayer you know what we've done we've said i don't have the answers you do i don't know it all you do notice what he said in that passage he says pray to the lord to send out laborers so we recognize brokenness And some of us think immediately right there what he's saying is, you need to go now. But what does he say? Pray for the Lord to send out laborers. He doesn't necessarily say right then, hey, you see brokenness, you're the one who needs to go fix it. Because you can't fix things. He fixes things. So we go to him. He's calling us to remember that a victory over sin, a victory over death, and a victory over brokenness can only be found in him. News for you. That victory over sin and death is not won by my preaching. I know a lot of y'all knew that. But it's also not won by your good works. It's not, it's not won by your proclamation. It's not, good. it's not won by how much planning you did and the execution of something. Or You know how it's won? You know how somebody goes from death to life? Through the power of the Holy Spirit and realization of their sin and their need for Jesus. And they said, Yes. You can't control that. So go to the one who can. You can't control how much money you make tomorrow. I know you think you can, but you can't. You can't control what happens when you get in your car and you leave this place and go to lunch, go home, go to that thing, go to that thing. You can't. You can't control your child's future. You can't control that broken relationship. And you can try to mend it and do all the right things. You cannot control it. But you know who can? Jesus. So go to the one who can fix it. And humble yourselves. Because he's never going to let you down. Now he may change your heart. Right? You may go to him going, I need this thing. And I'm singing it's never going to let me down. You're never going to let me down, the Lord. And he's going, I ain't never going to let you down. That's why I'm not giving you that thing. Because if I give you that thing... Your life will be in shambles. So, by recogni- in this harvest, this idea of going to him, the first thing he wants us to do is feel. The next thing he wants us to do, he calls us to do what? To forge. It says, in the language used, he's calling for us to do our part. And here's where everyone's been waiting for me to go. All right, when you go to this harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to send the laborers, all of us here, He's called you, and he has. But there's steps before that, right? Verse 3, he says, go your way. This is a, a similar statement to one that Jesus made to his disciples in this great commission that we've read over and over again. This idea where he's calling his disciples to make disciples, meaning to to teach people to follow Jesus in the everyday stuff of life. And in some ways, I think we hear that in church and we either become really, really numb to it or we think it's way too radical for us. But if we look closely at the whole of Scripture and what God has outlined for us is he's outlined for each and every one of you, myself included, a very, very, personal discipleship and evangelism plan, and we have somehow missed it. And I think I and other pastors have been guilty of leading congregations to miss it. In some ways, when we kind of proclaim this mandate of what likely feels like every Christian must do it this way, like you must become a street preacher, or you must become a preacher in your workplace, You must become someone at the ball field who's always handing out a card. Or you must become these other things that look like these in these cute little boxes. And if you're not those things, Christian, do you actually even love Jesus? Maybe I've got it all wrong, but I feel like sometimes this platform and this person, this pastor, sometimes has said things that might be misconstrued that way. And I want to be very clear. Each of us has a very specific gifting and calling. That doesn't mean that you're called to be a street preacher. For some of you, it might be. But there is a very specific plan, I believe, that God will lay out before you when you seek his face on how to follow him in what is called discipleship. So I want to give you a few examples of what making disciples, meaning becoming one of those laborers, can look like in this great harvest. Let's start. I think everyone's beginning is pretty similar. After we've recognized the brokenness in the world, we we begin to have this earnest heart to see people radically changed and saved by the person and the work of Jesus. And after we've gone there, the next step, again, similar. We're then called to take action through what? Y'all can talk back. I don't don't know if, you know, prayer. Thank you. Appreciate that. Just making sure y'all, you know, listening this morning. Here we go. Remember, prayer centers us. It reminds us. It focuses us. And it fuels us. And here is where it gets personal. When you read through the entirety of Scripture, what he has done is he has made you uniquely you. You have gifts that I don't have gifts. You have skills that I don't have. When he puts together the church, we see in 1 Corinthians that he has knitted us and woven us together in a very unique way. Years ago, there was a pastor who wrote a book called Unique Church because here's what we unfortunately do sometimes is we recognize the uniqueness of each of us, right? Like we have unique giftings and callings, but then somehow when we come together for the church, we go, all of them should look exactly the same. That's not true because none of you have like duplicates running around this world. Are there other people in the world that have similar giftings to you? Yes. Are there other people that are you? No. You are you, which means Piedmont is uniquely Piedmont. And if Piedmont is uniquely Piedmont and you are uniquely you, then you have a unique path to lead people to Jesus. Let me give you a couple examples. Some of you have this gift that we call evangelism. You're the person that when you get on an airplane, you're by yourself, you're on a six-hour flight, and you look forward to it, right? Do you know why you look forward to it? Because you can't wait to talk to somebody else. Some of you are that person. Others of you in this room are trying to avoid that person at all costs, (laughs) right? There are some of you. I have one in mind. I am looking at him. He can talk to anybody. He is uniquely gifted, you may be uniquely gifted at just making a conversation with someone and you know what it's not just making conversations somehow in that conversation that person you're speaking to always feels validated important heard these things kind of point to an idea that you may have a spiritual gifting of evangelism because you can help that person feel seen feel known and then when you begin to talk about your life and how Jesus has impacted your life, you have a springboard to immediately go, well, here's what he did in mine. Maybe he could do that in yours. Some of you have this gift of hospitality, right? You love hosting. You're really good at getting people in your house. It doesn't have to be a lot of people. It could be two. It could be 50. But some of you have this gift of just hospitality. You're always worried, do they have enough? Or, or do they have everything they need? You're just really good at it. You know what God's given you in that opportunity and that gifting is an opportunity to lead people to Jesus through hospitality. Like, use that gifting that He's given you and be intentional with people and start having them in your house. In some ways, MCs are built around that idea. Right? The reason why we have things like Neighborhood of the Nations, and we talk about people having dinner together, or going to these places, and going to restaurants, and having trivia nights, or whatever, is because some of you have the gift of hospitality, and when you're hanging out with that person at work who's not a believer at all, you're not really gifted in your mind to shift work into the conversation about Jesus, but you're loved, you're, you would love the opportunity to have them at your house. You'd love the opportunity to watch a football game with them, and over the course of those moments, if you're intentional, and you're bold, and you lean on the whole spirit for boldness and the right words god will lead you to a place of talking about jesus some of you have the gift of helps right when you see something broken you see hurting people you see people who are struggling you're the person who may or may not skip that first step of prayer and just go let me fix this let me help this because i can do this i know what to do and i mean you'll start a whole like You know, meal train for somebody who stubbed their toe. Like, you just have that gift, and it's a great thing to have. You can use that gift for somebody who doesn't have a community, somebody who doesn't have a church, and get a group of people from your church or from your office place set up some food for somebody in in need. See somebody whose roof is falling in and try to figure out how to help them paint a building, whatever. Like you've got these things and they, these gifts are springboards to conversations about the one who gave you the gift. How are we using our gifts to lead people to Jesus? There's a lot of unique ways to do it, but there's also some really generic ways that we could all take. On some Sundays, we'll, we'll walk in and on your chair, there'll be a little invite card, right? Every single one of us eats out at some point in a month, right? I'm not going to tell you. I know some of y'all are like, I don't ever eat out. And you eat out once a month somewhere, right? Even if it's a Chick-fil-A drive-thru, they need Jesus just as much as Taco Bell does, all right? <laughs> you take that invite card, and when you pay your bill, you could leave it. Simple. It's non-confrontational. When, when you're at the office place, you could invite somebody with that card. I use it as a business card, because I don't have a business card. So that is my business card, right? Side note, I, had a, I don't have a business card because I've always heard as soon as you get one, you lose your job. So uh, <laughs> I've just never got one at any job I've ever had. So uh, we could all give somebody an invite card. We could all share a song that's inspired us, right? It doesn't even have to be a Christian song. Like you could hear a song that's really moved your heart. You can share it with a friend through a text message, through an email, just at their office, and tell them why it moved your heart. And it begins a conversation that you are intentionally trying to take to a path of talking about Jesus. You can share a clip from a sermon. Doesn't have to be mine, by the way. I'm not the best preacher. There's a lot of people who are better than me. It could be a Bible verse. It could be from your devotional. You could easily share something with someone and go, hey, man, this really moved my heart. I was challenging with dealing with people, and I saw this really good proverb, right? Now, when you just say proverb, that could be Chinese. That could be all sorts of things. But it could actually be from the book of... There we go. Hey, good. That's good. There are lots of ways that we can start taking intentional steps to following Jesus and really being the disciple that he's called us to do. So the question that I have for you is where is your next step in becoming a laborer? Maybe you're not recognizing the brokenness around you. So maybe your first step is that. God, help me recognize it. Maybe it's, I'm not praying enough. Maybe that's the next step for you. Maybe it's taken the step of actually trying to be the laborer and when's the last time you shared the gospel with anybody let's back up when's the last time you tried to set up a moment to share the gospel with anyone like this is what we've been called to do and i'm not trying to guilt you into it what i'm trying to show you is when we ask the question so you're a christian what's next what we see from jesus time and time again is that a follower creates more followers And so as a Christian, what's next is we're looking to love people over and over and over again. But that's just three verses, and I don't have 35 more minutes. So let's unpack to see what he does the rest. Jesus has called us to recognize the broken, to pray, and then go and follow him in making disciples. And what he does in the next six or seven verses, verses three through nine, is he then gives us a picture that recalls our memory of that moment when Luke says, after this, it's this idea of carrying the cross. Verse 3 says, go your way. That's the imperative. That's the hey. As, as you're going, make disciples. Become that person. Be the laborer. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves, carrying no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. As Jesus sending us out for the slaughter. Like, I don't know about you, but if I'm choosing a wolf or a lamb in a fight, I'm never choosing the lamb, right? We could very much see that in this explanation to what Jesus is giving us, but I think there's something deeper here. And what he's calling us to do is we need to remember what happens when we recognize the harvest. When we recognize the harvest, the first thing Jesus tells you to do is what? Is to pray. And what did we say prayer does? It calls us to rely on him. Because we would never pick a lamb in a fight with a wolf. But I would also never pick David over Goliath. I would never pick this group of Israelites to flee from their captors across water that somehow then isn't there. Right? I would never pick some of these things, but somehow, time and time again, God makes it possible. And what He's doing for us in this passage is He's outlining our need for Him to provide. Let me unpack it like this. If God provided for every little thing in your life eventually he would we excuse me would neglect the giver because of the gifts like if you had everything that your little heart desired at all moments in time eventually you would neglect the giver because of the gifts and it is only in our time of need often times when we run to the Father. And what Jesus is instilling in these disciples is what he's teaching them and what he's teaching you and me today is that we need to build the need for him in our life. Let me give you a practical example. People inside the church and outside the church talk about tithing like it's cussing, right? Or, they just, or like it's politics. Don't talk about it, right? Do you know what true tithing does, though? It causes you to rely on Him and not 100% of your work and your finances. He's calling you and He's calling me to give up 10% of our work and our finances in honor of Him and in the effort to help us see our need for Him and not our need for money and for control. Because isn't that what money is in so many ways? The more you have, the more you can control what you want. And so we look at tithing like it's this cuss word or this thing we don't like. Because why? Jesus is calling you to give up control. It's not that you know, you've got some other attachment to money. The attachment to money is control. And so when he puts tithing in place in the Old Testament and then continues it into the New Testament when he really says, give me everything you have, What he's calling for you and for me to do is to let go of the things of this world and to let him be the increase rather than us controlling all things. And these next six verses, verses 10 through 16, are a warning to us if we don't trust him. Let's read it together. Verse 10. Whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom. Remember Sodom? Than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazan. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. These are people that have not received the teaching. They've heard it, but they're not receiving it. Sit, Sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. He says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, disciples, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. So you're a Christian. What comes after salvation? That was loud. The answer is as simple as... And as complex as it sounds, it's discipleship. That's why we have missional communities. So that each of us can start building in the rhythms of discipleship in our life. The rhythms that promote awareness of broken people. That promote prayer. Promote prayer for the lost in our neighborhood and to the nation's. In the rhythms of doing our part and then taking the gospel, the good news, to those who haven't received it. And get this, and to those who have. Because discipleship isn't just for salvation. Hear that. Like an MC isn't just so we can train you on how to go be evangelists. You need to be in an MC because you need somebody else helping you walk the Christian walk. Like, I need someone loving on me and calling me out and walking with me. And when I have troubles and I have struggles, I can go to them and go, hey, I don't know what I'm doing over here. What do, you, what do you think? How can you help me with this? We need each other, not just for salvation. We need each other for the daily walk and the daily rhythm. And when we're in community together, we remind ourselves of the gospel. And that's something that we need every single day. Because it's the reminder of our reliance on Jesus. So week one's bottom line is this. What comes after salvation? You start learning how to follow. That's what comes. So wherever you are in that process, maybe you've been saved for 40 years. Maybe you're not saved and you've never given your life to Jesus. I would call you today. And I'd encourage you today to recognize the brokenness and sin in your life and to give your life to Jesus. And tomorrow, you can start learning how to follow. Every single one of us has a step to take, no matter where you are on the path with Jesus. Not on the path, on the path early, deeper in life. You have a step. How will you take it? Let's pray. Lord, I uh, I call for boldness through the power of your spirit. I call for strength. Lord, each and every one of us are beginning a new year together. And there's a lot of ambition and hopes and dreams and things that we're doing to try to make this new year better than the previous. God, first and foremost, center our heart around you. Because just like we sang earlier, it is all about you. So help us to see your goodness. Help us to experience your goodness. And then start training us in the ways of following after you. Turn us into the laborers, the sent ones that you've called us to be. Help us to have community with each other where we carry each other's burdens. We love on each other in a unique way that causes the community around us, the people around us in our life to go, man, that church, those Christians, those individuals over there, they love more deeply than anybody else I've ever seen. Why? God, help us to use the gifts that you've given us to lead others, to love you, love people and invest in your kingdom. It's all these things I pray in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ. God's people said,